You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church, located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, our youth director, Josh Brewster, is preaching the sermon, The Entrepreneur, The Surly Crowd, and The Benefactor, from Luke 19. Biblical passages are both complex and simple in nature. There are many interconnected layers to every passage. This week, we look at the story of Zacchaeus from a different angle and experience how Jesus challenges all with his subversion. Okay, welcome my friends. I am very excited about this sermon. And um, I want to let you guys know that I don't take these opportunities lightly and I really do see them as a privilege. So I appreciate so much the opportunity to be able to speak um, with this group of individuals. And really for me, it's about learning, it's, it's about us learning together. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. So let's get right into it. The title of this sermon is called The Entrepreneur, The Surly Crowd, and The Benefactor. And I often get this question that I find rather easy to answer and I hope you can sense a little bit of the sarcasm there but the question is what does it mean to live a Christian life and like I said I love that question because it's so easy to answer and so what does it mean to live a Christian life I think often we get answers like be kind to everyone or one that I hear is live a godly life. Sometimes you'll get the classic love your neighbor. And what does that really mean? Love your neighbor, live a godly life. They sound good and they sound like they come out of the Bible, but what do they mean? I even, I even had a friend tell me one time that to live the Christian life is to swear only when you need to. And I, I say that jokingly because it really exposes the complexity of that question. And today's passage is out of Luke 19, 1 through 10. So let's just get right into it. Luke 19, 1 through 10 is the story about Zacchaeus. And I'm reading out of the message because I really like the way that the message interprets this story. Then Jesus entered and walked through Jericho. There was a man there, his name Zacchaeus, the head tax man, and quite rich. He wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and couldn't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. When Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, hardly believing his luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumbled. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? Zacchaeus just stood there a little stunned. He stammered apologetically, 
Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. Jesus said, today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to find and restore the loss. Now, as you guys know, context is key in understanding a biblical passage. And the reason is because as I've said before, these Bible passages that we read, they involve real people in real time experiencing real events. And so it's very difficult, a bit challenging to decide what a passage means unless we first try to figure out what it meant when the Bible was originally written. So there's an original audience that plays a big part in understanding a passage. Now, Jewish sages or Jewish ancient elders, they often referred to the Bible as having 70 faces. And what that meant to them was that any one passage could have 70 different meanings or 70 different points it was trying to make. The reality was to them that this was God's living word and it was inspired. And so we must challenge ourselves to look for the messages in the passages because they are not hidden. God does not hide messages. In fact, he reveals himself through the Bible. So the story of Zacchaeus, traditionally, I know that I have heard this story preached from the perspective of forgiveness and redemption. And that's good. That's a good way to pre this, preach this passage because forgiveness and redemption is a huge part of our lives and we should really understand the significance of that. But just under the surface, there is so much more to this story. And the reality is the details are woven together. The details are woven together to make a point. And so one of the, a good way to start is to understand the author. We have to understand the author. Who, who what was going on in the minds of the men that were writing these passages? And so let's first talk a little bit about Luke. Now, we're going to get into a few details here, and I maybe at times you're going to ask yourself, why are we talking about this and where this is going? But just hang in there with me. Jot down some of the details, and, to, and, and at the end, it'll start to all connect and make sense. So if you're taking notes... I will, uh, maybe I'll suggest um, that this would be a good thing to write down so that we can sequence the story out. So what do we know about Luke, okay? Luke, we know, was actually a physician. So he was a very educated man, and he was educated in the Hellenistic period. Now, the Hellenistic period, simply to understand, was pre-Roman Empire. And it was a culture that was 
very enamored by mathematics and science. And in fact, Luke's Greek was some of the best Greek in the whole New Testament. It was some of the cleanest, most well-written Greek, especially compared to the other Gospels. And this suggests that possibly his audience was a, a more cultured, more educated audience. He was also known to be a companion of Paul. And Luke's major concern, Luke's major concern was can Christians be good citizens of the Roman Empire? Luke suggested that Jesus' teachings were very compatible with that idea. So Jesus taught a lot about keeping peace, being law-abiding with a high moral values. And Luke was trying to get to the point that Christians can be good Romans too. Now, Luke, however, was not a fan of Judaism. His writings reflected a movement, this young emerging Christian movement, away from its Jewish roots and more towards a focus on Roman political and social arenas. And something that I find extremely interesting is that in Luke, Jesus is portrayed the most powerfully. And by powerful, I don't mean a position of status or a certain level of wealth. I mean powerful in the sense of true intentionality in what he was teaching. There was something coming out of Jesus that had never been seen before and it was powerful. Luke portrays Jesus as a prophet, a healer, a savior, a teacher, and a benefactor. And as a benefactor, Jesus was the giver of God's great gifts. And this was the way that Luke wanted to portray Jesus. So I think, I think there is another powerful message that can be pulled out of this passage. Not only is it a story about forgiveness and redemption, but it's a story about a state of existence that God expects for us, and it's called Shalom. So if you're taking notes, write that down, Shalom. So now we understand a little bit about Luke. Now let's get to some context of the actual passage. And again, bear with me here. What do we know about this passage? Okay, we know that Jesus was on his way from, I'm sorry, we know that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and he was passing through Jericho. And we know that Jericho is about 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem, about 10 miles north of the Dead Sea. And it was on the eastern side of, Palestine, of the Palestine region. And we also know that Jericho was 1,400 miles from Rome. Now that'll come into play at a later time. The passage takes place when the Roman Empire was fairly young. It had been around for about 60 years officially as the Roman Empire. And the man in charge at this point was a Caesar named Tiberius Caesar. 
And Tiberius, on a side note, was adopted. And I love that. And I love that because the most powerful man of the Roman Empire was adopted. I'm not sure why that stood out to me, but I wanted to share that with you guys. Okay, so back to Tiberius. So Tiberius, unlike the other Caesars, was not really into military conquests. In fact, Tiberius's take on Rome was let's build from within. He built the city treasury to numbers, astounding numbers that Rome had never seen before. And Tiberius was really known, unlike the other Caesars, to use diplomacy as much as he used military conquests when they would uh, take over the surrounding regions. So as they built this regime, this empire, he used diplomacy more than he used military conquests because he understood that military conquests are very expensive. And instead of, these instead of this high-cost military campaigns, Tiberius, and this is key, focused on economy and opportunity. In other words, Tiberius was driving business. And he was doing it through trade and production. And this was very different than the past Caesars. Now, the Roman Empire was growing very fast, and it was working its way to 2 million square miles of area that it ruled over. And just for reference, we talked about Palestine area earlier. Palestine, which is basically where most of Jesus' life took place and most of the stories in the Bible took place, is about 2,000 square miles. So that puts it into perspective. Okay. So within that two million square miles was a small city, and guess what the name of that city was? Jericho. And Jericho was known as the oasis in the desert. And why am I sharing that detail with you? Write that down. I'm sharing that detail with you because Jericho is one of few, pl few places in the region that had a natural spring that fed the city. And it produced, it was literally the only region in the area that grew this very specific shrub that produced a byproduct called balsam. So, so track with me here, write down balsam. So we got Shalom, Tiberius, economy, business. Now let's write down balsam. And what is balsam? Balsam is a resin, and it had many different uses, but one of its most significant uses was an expensive fragrance. And guess who had a high demand for expensive fragrances? Yes, you are probably guessing right, the Roman Empire. And so as we begin to connect the dots, we see that the Roman Empire made... Jericho, a very wealthy city. And the Roman Empire recognized something very quickly. And that was that a way to grow economies, and like most growing economies, taxation was the key. Especially on imported and exported goods like balsam. 
Now, the Roman Empire also recognized that they were a large geographical area. Remember that we said they were 2 million square miles. And so they, they realized that it would be rather difficult for them to send out tax collectors to each of these different areas within that 2 million square miles. So what they did was they developed a bidding process locally. So they would put out a bid for the position of a tax collector. And basically, it was a significant business opportunity provided by Rome. And it attracted entrepreneurs. This was a very well thought out process by Rome. And it attracted entrepreneurs because Rome knew that entrepreneurs typically make things happen. And Rome did not discriminate against who could win this bid. You could be Jew or Gentile. They did not care. Now, there was a Jewish man in the city of Jericho who was known as an entrepreneur. And in fact, he was known as a very successful entrepreneur. And there are some scholars that believe this man had multiple businesses. In other words, this dude was rich. He had a lot of money. He was wealthy. And I will give you one guess what this dude's name was. Zacchaeus. Write it down. So not only, as we see in the passage, not only did he win, did Zacchaeus win the bid process, but he was also the head tax collector, which meant that Zacchaeus had people working underneath him. And most Jews, especially religious leaders, saw Rome as this enormous oppressive regime, two million square miles. They're 1,400 miles away from Jericho, and yet they're collecting taxes with someone with a Jewish man on the inside. And so these, these religious leaders, these religious Jews saw Rome as an oppressive regime. They saw paying taxes as submitting to Caesar, and they saw submitting to Caesar as an act of religious treason. So we can assume, we can assume that the crowd described in our passage had a pretty good reason to hate Zacchaeus. And you can't blame them. He was a Jew working for Rome. This is a big deal. He was once one of them, and now they hate him. Let me say that again. He was once one of them, and now they hate him. They made Zacchaeus an outsider. Write that down. They saw Zacchaeus as an outsider. He was not one of them anymore. They put him into another category. They made him the other. And for an ancient Jew, that was a big deal. So, my friends, now, now we understand 
the hostile environment just below the surface as Jesus walks in to Jericho. And we can assume that that same crowd is following Jesus. As we read through the passage, we see that Zacchaeus has this deep curiosity and eagerness to see Jesus. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because of this one simple line that if you just read it through, it wouldn't mean much. But if you just took a second to look into it, you would realize that it is a significant detail woven into the story to make a point. And this is in verse 3. He wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Now, why is that such a big deal? That is such a big deal because climbing a tree was a very odd, unusual, and undignified behavior for someone of his wealth status. Think about this. Think about any super wealthy person that you know. Imagine if someone came to town that had a following, and this person climbed a tree to see them. How odd would that seem? How odd would that feel? You would sense that well, there's, there's something going on there that's making this individual climb the tree. So, okay, it's odd, it's undignified that someone of his, his wealth status climbed the tree. This was not an adult practice, similar to today. Adults don't really climb trees. This was not an adult practice and especially not rich adults. So what happens? Jesus sees Zacchaeus, and there's two very interesting details here again. He calls him by name, and he invites himself to a meal. Now, this is the only time that Jesus invites himself to the meal. Typically, he waits for the invite. And also, I find it interesting that Jesus just knows Zacchaeus' name. Now, what's going on there? There's a few things we can probably come up with. One, was Zacchaeus that well-known? Was he so well-known that you just looked at him and you knew that's Zacchaeus? Or was it simply divine knowledge? Did Jesus just know that that was Zacchaeus? Did Jesus know everyone's name? Did Jesus just throw out names because of his divine knowledge? Could it possibly be that Jesus had some followers in his, in his group that knew of Zacchaeus? And you can just hear him as they're walking into the city. See that guy up in that tree? Jesus, that's Zacchaeus. He's the head tax collector of this area, and that guy is a scumbag. That could, that could have perhaps happened to you. Or maybe, maybe, did Jesus meet Zacchaeus before. And is that why Zacchaeus was so eager to see him again? Did Zacchaeus want to show Jesus something? Whatever the reason, it, it really doesn't matter. But what we know is that the crowd was not happy about it. And we can read in verse 5 through 7. When Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. 
Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, hardly believing his luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumbled. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? And the English word grumble does not do this word justice. The Greek word is goyismos. I mean, just that word alone is so much better than our word, goyismos. And it means to murmur or mutter with discontent, to make ill-natured complaints in a low, surly voice, to growl or snarl in deep tones like a lion over his prey. Wow. The crowd obviously was not happy with Jesus' choice. And they were very critical. And they were showing their prideful hearts because they were questioning Jesus' decision to eat with Zacchaeus. And so we see in verse 8 as we continue that Zacchaeus gets down from the tree Zacchaeus just stood there, a little stunned. He stammered apologetically, Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. Now what's interesting here is on a side note, four times the damages comes from early on in Exodus when the Hebrews were trying to understand the idea of redemption. And one of their ways to deal with that reconciliation was, for example, if you accidentally killed your neighbor's sheep, you would go and, pull and pay, you would go and give that neighbor four sheep to reconcile and make right that situation. So Zacchaeus knew his scripture. Now there is some debate here about verb tense and why I think this is interesting is because the I give and the I pay can be translated two different ways. And those two different ways are Zacchaeus will start doing those things now from this point on, or, or Zacchaeus has been actively doing this already. Now that changes that whole sequence there. Regardless, regardless of how that verb is translated, at that very moment, Zacchaeus' heart is in a good state. We could suggest that his heart was in a state of shalom. And so the obvious question at this point is, what is shalom? So let's transition out of our story for a little bit and unpack this. Most of us know shalom as peace. But if you think about it, peace in some ways is determined by one's own biased needs. Meaning, my peace could be different than your peace. And my peace could in fact interfere with your peace. 
And so shalom has to be something more than peace. It has to be deeper. For example, if an old man says, man, I just want peace from my neighbor's teenage sons playing the drums. Well, what the old man really wants is just quiet. Or let's say a business owner says, I just want peace from worrying about paying my bills. What the, what the business owner really wants is for his store to be busier. He wants success. Or the, the expecting mother waiting anxiously to hear her baby's heartbeat. She wants peace. But what the mother really is seeking is good health for her unborn baby. So you see the complexity here. So what does shalom mean? Well, we can start with it is an incredibly complex concept. It's more than just peace. It's a state of existence understood as a wholeness or a completeness. And it's not a static term, meaning it's dynamic in nature. It's moving. And it involves lots of different pieces in existence in a state of completeness and wholeness. Okay? So one way the ancient Jews would have understood this is the joining together of opposites, which isn't necessarily peace. It's a state of harmony. And what's so interesting is we first see this in Genesis 1. God creates functionality by putting in the proper place opposites. For instance, you got the heavens and the earth. You have water and land. You have dark and you have light. You have man and you have woman. So he is intentionally creating a state of shalom right off the bat. And he removes the chaos, as we read in the Bible, and replaces it with shalom. And so we could maybe suggest that shalom is experienced on like a multi-dimensional level, meaning it's a physical, it's a psychological, it's a social, and it's a spiritual thing. It's a complete well-being. And it flows, it flows from our relationships being put right with God, oneself, others, and our environment. The ancient Jews understood shalom as one of the most basic characteristics of God's kingdom. And this was something that they would understand very well, especially Jewish religious leaders. They would understand the idea of shalom very well. But what happens right off the bat? Sin disrupts shalom. It puts the whole process back into chaos. We see that happen right off the bat with Adam and Eve. And so now today, today in our modern lives, we fight our battles 
whatever that is for you, we fight it because we can't attain shalom ourselves. It is not something we can bring upon ourselves. It is not peace. It doesn't come from us. The shalom in the Bible that transcends all the flaws of our daily lives only comes from God. And he offers it if you seek him. And so back to the story of Zacchaeus. We read in verse 9 and 10. We see Jesus do something very interesting here. He says, Jesus said, Today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to find and restore the loss. Let me say that again. For the Son of Man came to find and restore the loss. And this just hits me so hard. Because what did Jesus do to the crowd here? He did what he does so well. He is always one step ahead of the obvious. And Luke, as we now know, portrays Jesus as a powerful teacher and savior. And here we see it. What Jesus does is he subverts the narrative by flat out challenging the religious hypocrisy of that crowd. He challenges the hearts of the crowd. And what's interesting is some of this crowd, possibly the majority of this crowd, were religious leaders from God's chosen people group. Another way to put that would be the insiders. The ones who should understand the idea of shalom the best. Let that sink in. This crowd should understand the idea of shalom the best. And so the, the question that I ask, or the statement that I make here, is maybe, just maybe, Jesus wasn't too worried about Zacchaeus after all. Maybe Jesus was more concerned with the crowd because he knew, he knew the true nature of their hearts. He was one step ahead of them. And I love how we see this play out in another passage. This is in Matthew 9, 10 through 13, through 11, I'm sorry, 10 through 11. And this is Jesus dealing with some religious leaders again. And again, this is out of the message. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his closest followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined him. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus and his followers. What kind of example 
Is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? And I love Jesus' reaction here. I think we see the powerfulness of Jesus. Jesus, overhearing, shot back. And I can just see this intentional, powerful state of Jesus when he replies. Who needs a doctor, he says. The healthy or the sick. Go figure out what the scripture means. I am after mercy, not religion. I'm here. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle the insiders. Man, that is just so good. I'm here to invite the outsiders, not coddle the insiders. So what we see here is the crowd's reaction is by no means practicing shalom. And while this crowd is judging Zacchaeus and Jesus, they can't even see their own brokenness. And in our passage, Jesus masterfully exposes their sinful hearts. And he just simply reminds them that he came to save all, not, not just a specific group of people that considered themselves the insiders. Man. And so, so what? What difference does it make, really? It's 2020, man. I'm not climbing into a sycamore tree. I don't have to deal with being a head tax collector. I don't have people hating me because I'm working for some oppressive regime. So while I may understand this passage and I might even believe some loose doctrine it's teaching, the question is, do, do I fully understand and embrace the way this is challenging us to live? And I think a way to dig into that a little bit is we must ask ourselves a simple yet complex biblical question about God's expectations for the way we live. And that question is, are we, are we perpetuating the broken, incomplete, chaotic ways of this world or are we embracing and living out shalom which which as we understand it now is this wholeness and completeness only offered by God you might ask that another way 
am I Zacchaeus or am I the crowd? Do I embrace the other or do I embrace the wholeness? And so friends, maybe, maybe that's the way we start to talk about the question, what does it mean to live a Christian life? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are such a good God, Lord, and you love us and you provide for us, Lord. And we thank you for the, the ways that you reveal yourselves through these passages, Lord. We understand that you are the only one that offers a true state of shalom, Lord. And help us to understand how to embrace that on a daily basis, Lord. Work within each of our hearts in every situation that we come across to try to embrace a state of shalom, Lord. We thank you so much for giving Jesus to us as an example for that, Lord. And we pray that as each day goes on, you teach us more and more what it is like to live a life that meets your expectations, Lord. Thank you so much that despite this chaotic environment that we're in now, that we still have the opportunity to meet and learn about you, Lord. Even though it's not a traditional setting, Lord, work through this setting and speak to each of us the way you need to. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and in your precious, precious name, amen. And now, my friends, may God's courage and God's strength be with you. Thank you for joining us today. During this time of social distancing and isolation, our church is seeking to provide more online content. Please check out our website for videos, Bible studies, and other downloadable resources. Our website address is wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, Keep your eyes on Jesus and have a great week.